This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. <laughs> Rob got it. Did we all get? Yeah, I got it too. You got okay. Nice. I think I, so. Uh, can, can I guess? I, uh, I am. Yes. Go for it. Is it an Arden Forest reference? It is indeed. I'm, I'm reading okay. the uh, the Band of Brothers book right now, which I have. I've probably seen that miniseries like, gosh, <laughs> seven or eight times, but I've never actually read the book, and it's very good. Is nuts um, what they he wrote back to the German to the German commander who requested the surrender of uh, d- during the Battle of the Bulge? Yes, yeah, in the Arden Forest. Fantastic uh, reference. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, how are you, Danny? I'm doing good. I've turned a corner on um on Cargate on a stolen Cargate. Um, oh, I've I've gone at a different. Well, no, it it the, the car has disappeared. I tried to do a license plate. Okay, I'm Check. glad that by turn the corner, you didn't mean you're like wandering the street like Charles Branson. <laughs> like, I need a really attractive car that I want people to try to steal from me so I can get some street justice. I'd be like, Danny, I don't think that's the point of that movie. That's not that's a like, good that's idea, not like a Rob. goals type thing. You're right. I should. Did he get that idea from from being on a podcast with his friends? Because I think, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, that didn't uh, make the final cut of the film. Uh, <laughs> but Charles Branson's character was part of like a lifestyle podcast. Yeah nice um i uh, <laughs> uh no i i i was kind of reconsidering like should i get another mustang and all this sort of stuff especially because i purchased that car back when i had a commute and back before we entered the nightmare realm so mm. i was thinking like what other things could i do and in the past week i have basically convinced myself to become an overlander <laughs> and get a jeep wrangler <laughs> um so i have one sitting in front of my car in front of my house right now which i rented for three days so oh. uh i'm gonna try that jeep life uh get get my jeep wave on and um and maybe do some do an overnight camping trip or something this week so see see what it's like yeah speaking of world war ii references general yeah, purpose know, right gp what? general purpose i think that's what jeep stands for oh really yeah GP is re- hmm I, I've just come up, I've learned a lot about like roads I didn't know existed before. And also the term um, OHV, off-highway vehicle, oh. um, which, which is a term given to, I guess, you know, your scrambler bikes, your dune buggies, your Jeeps, I guess, on the high end. Um, hmm. And that's where all those like, you know, trails that go through, you know, uh, forest and national parks and all that that you can only take on these types of cars you There's got a whole get, world out there yeah you should waste. get one of those cars that uh it, the icelandic dune buggies that have tires so big that they skip across the water if they drive fast enough oh my god you ever seen those that sounds no Are you sure it's all not right. ice i gotta <laughs> no it is they they go so fast uh and their tires are so big that they get up to speed on land and then skim across the top of the water i will put a, I'll find big, a video did, yeah, do they look like hover tank big? Notes. Are we like comically big? Like <laughs> they're monster pretty, truck they're like, big? 
They're like tractor tires. They're big. Okay. I've uh, I've been enjoying um, just checking out all the different things you can do in these things, like sticking a, like a tent on top of it and sleeping okay. on top of your car. Mm. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe I'll totally just get bored of this whole idea like a week from now and I'll be on to some other shit next week on the podcast. Stay subscribed. <laughs> so I have a quick question as somebody who... Uh, Hasn't been out in California for a bit and doesn't know the Bay Area super super well, but um, my impression it's, it's is that a lot of it's on fire, and so yeah. my, like I'm curious, where are safe places to go camping where like a lightning strike strike might just not like utterly fuck you? That's a good question. I do not have the answer to that. I know right now that my air filters. Uh, I opened the door earlier to bring in the groceries and the air filters on my house suddenly went red and started spinning up um because we had to buy air filters because the smoke was so bad Jesus. in our house mm-hmm. um what's is it that bad in, in the city as well Drew? it's yeah it's it's pretty bad i uh the number is like 160 right now and yeah. below 50 is clean um yeah over 150 so it, is basically like you, you should not, to be, not outside. be outside yeah yeah um, and like we're closing schools at 150. Oh my god! It smells like if, a barbecue. If they're not already closed because of the global, right? Then, you know. Yeah, really. Just pile it on. What else you got? Yeah, Earth you're quake. right. 150 smells like a barbecue. You're totally right. It smells like you're mm-hmm. at a barbecue. Like not yeah. that your neighbor's having one. That you're actually at the barbecue. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Also joining us on the other side of the country, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Well, not too bad. Uh, just you know. Worried that Danny's about to do something unwise in a fit of enthusiasm for the outdoors. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I, I won't would, be here next week. <laughs> I would, I would do a little research, Danny. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, adventures all about just doing. No, don't worry. I definitely, I definitely will. <laughs> no, nothing more American than being like, ah, the great outdoors is my playground. No, I haven't done my homework. Goodbye. <laughs> I've seen uh, Into the Wild. I forget how it ends. It's all fine, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So you're gonna get a bus. <laughs> yeah, or uh, exactly. maybe next week you'll come back uh, having purchased a Pontiac Aztec. What's a Pontiac mm, Aztec? It's classic. The, uh, it's what? Um, it's Pontiac's Edsel, basically. Uh, so oh, it was like their hybrid thing. SUV car uh, that kind of wow. marked the... And it turns into a tent in the back. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, Isn't yeah, that look the at car that. he drives in Breaking Bad? Oh, wow. Yeah, we didn't is. have Pontiacs in a, in Europe. That's amazing. I know I'm going to get a bunch of emails about it. Oh, I see the, the tent at the back. That's wild. And I'm not going to get a bunch of emails about it as well, but they are bringing back the um, uh, the Bronco next year. They're bringing, and it looks crazy. It's been long guess, enough. Yeah, people forgot about OJ now, so it's fine. They can they can reintroduce it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it looks completely crazy. You can get like modified doors with holes in them and stuff. It looks. The wild. thing you um, can't get, as I understand, those like there's no uh, EV or like hybrid options for the Bronco. Like it's very yeah. much a like it's this close to being like I'd like to buy the Rolling Coal edition of the Bronco. <laughs> yeah. Like it's that kind of uh, rollout. But hey, uh, people seem excited. Yeah, the Wrangler doesn't either, which is, it, it's all, yeah, considering as well how many people use these things with, like, solar panels on top when they go camping and, like, charge the hell out of them, it's almost a shame. Although I'm not sure how fast you can charge a car using panels. <laughs> Who knows? Hey, shift F1 podcast at gmail.com. There you go. Uh, if you are new to this Shift F1 podcast, welcome. Uh, and if you are new to Formula One, 
uh, we have a podcast episode for you. We recommend listening to our preseason primer that assumes no prior F1 knowledge uh, and gives the lowdown on how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you want to go back and listen to that, it is episode 96. Uh, also, this show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, primers for other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. We're recording uh, recording this week, fellas? We sure are. Rendezvous is going to be up for the weekend, so if you are interested in checking that out, it's a short movie, the shortest movie uh, we'll probably ever cover after we did the longest movie ever last month. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to have a very in-depth analysis of a very short piece of film, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash shiftf1. We are still perilously close to 1,000 patrons um, for our track day. Maybe I'll evolve it as well. Maybe instead of doing a track day or while we wait for the track day, I'll do like a camping day in a fire somewhere. <laughs> okay, yeah, emphasis on you. <laughs> <laughs> cannot wait until uh, the latest uh, fire outbreak is like located to danny's like campground oh no what if i yeah I, sometimes I wanna... sometimes a man just wants s'mores and uh <laughs> he cares not what it takes to produce them speaking of uh american traditions did anyone watch the indy 500 yeah i caught the highlights i watched the race uh how was it i mean Decent race, I think. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of scary crashes, a lot of fire. Yeah, there actually. was. Yeah, the, um, God, that brake fire was the craziest thing I've ever seen. One of the front rights, uh, I don't know, did it lock or something? I've never seen a, a brake uh, red with fire. Maybe that was in the other one. What's the thing called? Carb day? Can someone explain carb day to me? That I was cannot. like the race. There was a there was a race. <laughs> but that the day was definitely before. in the race. The, oh, that the was break fire was okay. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was um, crazy. I'll tell you, I don't know whether I've just been spoiled by watching commercial-less F1 or if things got mm. worse while I've been gone because, oh my God, I could not believe how many commercials NBC showed. Really? It was unbelievable. It was embarrassing. Like how like often I thought, we talk? Like, oh, uh, you know, someone who's never seen motorsports before, uh, the Indy 500. That, I'm going to check that out, or maybe you know, maybe a listener was like, um, you know, I should check out this American uh, version of of motorsports biggest race. And I, I can't imagine what pe- people must have been thinking coming to that for the first time. Like, I, you can't follow anything because the just the stories just get interrupted, uh, and then when they come back from a commercial break, they don't update you about what happened sometimes uh, a pass for the lead will happen under commercial break or uh, uh you know a crash um and maybe they'll re- replay it but they they do show side by side you know they put the race in like the size of a postage stamp on your Little screen while the, yeah while the ad plays much larger um it's horrendous uh yeah. huh. I, and I think i don't even think there's a way if you, I mean, please correct me, listeners, if I'm wrong about this. I, I hope I am. But I think even if you pay for, like, the NBC Sports Gold, I think you still get all the commercials. Um, Were the commentators, like, saying, oh, we'll be back after these messages kind of thing? Or was yeah. it just cutting them off? Or they were So they've got so two like, flavors they, of, yeah. of ad. They, they break away for a full commercial break. But then they will tell you, ah, we'll be back uh, to see the end of the race uh, nonstop or whatever. 
And you think, cool, we're gonna be, we're gonna watch the race till the end. But no, that's when they start doing the insert ad uh, in the big picture while the race unfolds. In oh, the little you're picture. kidding! Oh, dude, it is, it is terrible. Oh. I've had, Drew, I've had the same feeling. Uh, I think NBC's racing coverage feels like it's gotten worse uh, on this front in the last year. Uh, but I also have started to feel like basketball too seems to have more ads than i remember and maybe it is that during the during the hiatus i just like completely forgot what it was like to watch <laughs> it with commercials but it is so much harder now uh to maintain focus on a race and any sort of sense of like what is the state of play um yeah, God help us if Mothers, uh, the greatest car polishing kit uh, company on the planet Earth, uh, God help us if uh, they ever hit hard times and can't give us uninterrupted F1, because uh, then we're screwed. But I, I, I do also think that it's, it is self-defeating. I was seeing this thing where like NBA uh, ratings have been in a long-term decline, and I do kind of wonder to what degree... Do sports that like really wedded the cable model, do they put themselves in a trap attracting like younger audiences and like having an appealing product? Because if you are if you come from entertainment sources that don't run ads as a matter of course, and you're not like just conditioned to accept that like in an hour you will spend like twenty five minutes watching ads, yeah. it just sucks. Yeah. Dude, I felt that way when I moved over here. It was just like, this is insane. When it would happen during like soccer games, because like obviously that's a sort of an apples to apples thing I can do. We're like, no, we've got 45 minutes of uninterrupted like game and then yeah. we'll get to commercial break. I, I watch, I've been watching a lot of baseball just because I've missed sports so much. So I watched almost a, a, every A's game this year and uh, there's commercials during that, but you kind of don't care because the game is stopped. Like it's not interrupting yeah. it. I cannot imagine anything. I feel like NBA is bad or some of these ones are annoying, but racing in particular, when you're constantly waiting where anything can happen at any moment must just feel like that's, that's super annoying. Yeah. And, that's like and the like this worst is, version of it. And this is like, it's a, it's a, it's a, tr it's an American institution. Like I am, uh, you know, I'm not doing an IndyCar podcast. I'm doing a formula one podcast, but like the Indy 500 is a big deal. And, uh, the fact that you just, you just, you know, cripple it with, with this stuff. It's like, a, it's not a watchable fun experience. And like the, the commentary mm. is bad. Like I love me some Lee Diffie and Townsend Bell usually has some good things to say, but like, well, PT's gotta just, go. Oh my God. <laughs> Paul Tracy can, can get bent. Um, and even the, <laughs> the, the supporting cast of like Danica Patrick and, and Mike Tirico, they just have nothing insightful to say. I think because they're trying to like walk this fine line of like uh, IndyCar fans might be watching the whole season, but then new people might be coming in. Oh, yeah. And so the, the average of that is just nothing, I guess. And so no one has anything insightful to say. No one can give you a sense of what the drivers are feeling or how strategy works or how an oval is different than a circuit. It's just, it's just nothing. So, so like, okay. I, I think I was I'll awful. say this, like, I think, I think you've definitely put your, your finger on it, that it is this notion that like, we knew it need to appeal to like Joe casual viewer who just like stumbled across the, the Indy 500. But they don't respect because anyone's intelligence. Watch, pardon? 
They don't respect anyone's intelligence oh, yeah. as a viewer. No, that's that's. I think this has always been the problem with the way like the U.S. broadcast sports is like they treat you like an idiot rather than just like assuming you will get it and get caught up in the excitement. You'll of catch up. Play. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like if you watch the NBC endurance racing, which is broadly a lot of the same talent, the level of commentary and production is like way, way higher because they know ain't nobody watching endurance racing <laughs> yeah. except like yeah. absolute nut jobs like myself who are like, Awesome. Okay, two and a half hours left in this race. I know what I'm mm. doing for the rest of the day. Uh, it's like that's who they're they're aiming at, and then suddenly it becomes a really insightful broadcast. But uh, yeah, like the Indy 500, that that casting like Mike Tirico is their general uh, NBC sports guy. He's like their their general anchor for their broadcasts. I think he's like he's actually an NFL expert, but he's just kind of there as the face of NBC sports. So yeah, it's it's a mess, uh, and it's kind of an it, it's one of those things that it is. It has watered itself down for like an audience of nobody. Uh, is yeah. kind of how it feels. Yeah, because like not like F one and not like Shift F one. We'll never do that to you. So <laughs> click on that Patreon button and subscribe <laughs> and send us racing. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Today we will be discussing not the IndyCar race, but the Formula One one coming up in. Ass. <laughs> you certainly could. Uh, before we get to Spa, though, let's hit the news. Do people, um, do people know Rob is like six foot five? So <laughs> How there is you? that. Yeah, six five. Are you six wow. five? Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is that you, video. Just, you that know we when did. people have like a. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we did the video of the the, the taste test, right, of the blue coast. Yeah, although like, I am I'm, I'm standing one. on a lower step, so I look tiny. Oh, are you, Drew? Oh, yeah. oh is that it? Yes, true? I am. I'm standing on my knees. <laughs> also, the camera angle. Yeah, yeah, it, it loses two inches. No, but uh, yeah, it's just yeah. Also, it's that thing where you listen to podcast for years and then you don't know what anyone looks like. Like I've had that happen so many times where I've then seen someone in a video and I'm like, oh, I thought they were like you know, a different ethnicity or something. You know what I mean? Like, you're just you're totally off. Because Rob's obviously from, you know, Antarctica as well. <laughs> yeah. That's where the accent comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, Paul, I'm also pretty sure I could beat Paul Tracy in a race because he was good at wrecking cars, uh, not so much at racing <laughs> him. But anyway. Uh, yes, the news. Um, we mentioned it. I think uh, last time that McLaren had signed the new Concord Agreement, mm. as it is called, the the governing document um, that also uh, you know dishes out or um, lays out how prize money is given out to teams, uh, how teams are paid basically by the sport. Um, everyone has signed it now, which also means that everyone, uh, all the teams, that is, have committed to formula one through 2025 which is how long mm. this uh current agreement agreement lasts so i thought i would uh just go over what this agreement contains uh, the details are confidential but we do know some stuff um so i i didn't realize this before but this is the first time that there has been any sort of financial regulation in the sport um the the goal with this new document is to sort of bring the performance of the cars closer by reducing the financial disparity between the teams. So um, 
uh, we're getting a budget cap, which you know, hopefully will you know as we as we know, more money leads to faster cars on track generally. Um, so this will tamp down on the gross spending of teams, you know, like Mercedes and Ferrari and, and Red Bull, and bring everybody a little closer um, together. So next year. As a result of this document, uh, it will be a maximum um, budget cap of $145 million. And then it steps down by $5 million uh, over the next three years to end at 135 in 2023. Um, that cap, though, only covers expenditures that relate to car performance. So marketing costs are not included, uh, race driver fees. Um, and the cost of the team's top three personnel uh, are, are not included in this, um, along with property costs uh, and the purchasing of a customer engine supply deal, according to Formula1.com, um, which has been capped also at 15 million euros per season. So, um, you know, Mercedes selling engines can't, you know, price gouge their their customers. Um so, yeah, I, I, I think the, the mere existence of a budget cap offers the possibility for an F1 team also to actually make money because 100% mm. of their profits in the past could potentially be dumped back into the car for making it fast. So if you've got a cap on that, uh, maybe you can maybe your money can actually go to, uh, you know, other other things instead of just your car performance. Um, there are limits on aero testing, aerodynamic testing as well within this document um the default allowance again according to formula1.com for wind tunnel testing will be reduced by more than 30 percent of what it is now to just 40 runs in a wind tunnel Mm. per week i think it's around 65 right now um and if you imagine the the 40 runs per week number as 100 percent of your wind tunnel time teams will actually uh, receive or be reduced wind tunnel time by where they are in the championship. So mm. in 2021, first place will get 90% of that. Uh, and this will be set at the beginning of the year based on last year's championship and then uh, reset on June 30th of every year. Um, so first place will get 90% of that. And then 10th place will get um, 112.5% of that. And then the disparity grows in 2022. Yeah, so wait, the wait, first wait, place... Wait, wait, oh, of course, sorry, 10th being team, of course, sorry. Yeah, okay. sorry, 10th, 112, yeah. okay, yeah. Is I is this, yeah, sorry, so what's, what is what is it the year after that? Because I, I kind of half remember what we said, remember, because maybe they did this stuff about three months ago. They brought in some of this wind tunnel stuff, but I think it's moved a little bit. Yeah, so um, along with the, the cost cap, I think a lot of this stuff has been in sort of a voluntary adoption modes, so teams can like test it out. Um, but they won't be penalized if they go over it uh, until 2021. So hmm. in 2022, that wind tunnel time uh, deficit gets increased. So in, when you're in first place, you get 70%. Uh, yeah. And then if you're in 10th place, you get 115. So okay, yeah. That'll, uh, again, hopefully bring the disparity of uh, the cars together. Uh, and prize money is uh, probably the most secretive thing that is in this document but scott mitchell over at therace.com um another url with a hyphen in it uh has some insights here that i'm just going to read um 
gone are the inflated special payments for multiple teams. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, the way this used to work is like Bernie Eccleston struck deals with like Mercedes, uh, Red Bull, and we're like, you guys are important. So we're going to give you like a, a sweetheart deal here. Um, Ferrari, I think, ha- because of the fact that they have been in the sport since its inception, they get a special standalone bonus just for being Ferrari that is retained in this new Concord agreement, but everybody else, sorry, see you later. Mm. Um, going back to, uh, Scott Mitchell, it is understood that a pot of prize money remains available to a specific group of teams with historical significance and success, however. So, uh, maybe depending on how those other teams do, they're more likely to get, I don't, I don't know. Um, Title winning teams and teams that finish in the top three in the driver or the constructors championship in the past decade are also eligible for this pot. Uh, so over the past 10 years, if you finish in the top three, you get a, a piece of this as well. Hmm. Um, and that is derived from a percentage of F1's revenue, uh, reportedly 20% of F1 of what F1 makes over $650 million. So there's an incentive here for everyone to, you know, make the sport as good as it can be because they get a bonus based on F1's revenue. Yeah, they're sharing in the success of the sport. Right. Itself, yeah. Uh, what is left over after the payments explained above will then make up the prize money pot. This is what used to be the column one and column two payments. So those were like static. Well, column one was static, like everyone gets a bonus. Column two are all the same bonus. And then column two was you get a bonus on a sliding scale depending on how you finish the championship. Now teams will get a share of one pot with a sliding scale of less than 1%, I assume of F1's revenue, based on championship finishing position with the champion understood to be in line to receive 14% of the prize money and the last place team 6%. This is a lot of numbers out here, but it's it all boils down to like a much more simplified... Uh, an equitable uh, prize payout, which was interesting because leading up to this, Total Wolf, I think, was the most vocal about he did not like uh, the what was in the Concord Agreement, which was to me a good sign. And there were <laughs> some hemming and hawing from other teams. But now that it's signed, I think everyone is like generally pretty happy, uh, at least externally, uh, with what's in it. So uh, that's a, that's a good sign for me. Yeah, seemed, um, I don't know. I get to it later, but the, it seemed like Haas were particularly happy about the some of the uh, payola stuff when it came to. They were um, or were not. Were with with with, okay. with the new sort of redrawing of that. Um, I mean, hoping the, to, because the, money's always money's been the big problem for them for sure. Yeah, and the fact that that they signed it and they said we'll be in right. here for the next five years is if, if there was a team out of that you thought you thought Williams might not. You know, we'll get to that as well. But Williams might not survive it, and Haas might just peace out because. They've sort of been on autopilot a bit. It kind of feels like autopilot, but on a downward trend for the past right. couple of years. Uh, and then last thing here is uh, the governance of the sport. So we we no longer need a unanimous decision to make a rule change, which we did before. Um, so yeah. one team cannot block uh, a new rule from coming into effect. Except Take that Ferrari. Uh-oh. For Ferrari. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> they still retain <laughs> their veto. Yeah. Sounds like it's, yeah, veto, yeah, I don't know. But whatever, they are, you know, they've got a gigantic fan base. They've been in the sport forever. I, I, I'm i fine with a little bit of special treatment. 
I'm not. Uh, I think it's I think it's molto male. They their um prize, you know, their uh their bonus for just being Ferrari was sliced in half, I believe. So from like a hundred million to fifty, something like that. Cool. Um yeah, so it seems like everybody's thumbs up on this. Uh, a lot of the weird Eccleston stuff got axed, so this uh I think it seems to be paving the way for a more sustainable sport. Mm. Um, you know, we will see over the next five years how this actually pans out, but uh, I am optimistic at least. Um, anything yeah, else in that hot stuff? Uh, no, there was some quotes from uh, Gunter Steiner just about um, that the money was a big sticking point for them. Um and they're just hoping like to figure out the car and hopefully the new regulation. Same sort of notes that he's same beats he's been hitting for the past little while. I, th- I what I am interested in is it does this it, if the financial outlook changes, do we see the shakeup dr- of drivers that we're been sort of have been expecting, especially in regards to Grosjean, who seems like he's kind of coasting a bit. Have yeah, to wait and see. We will. Uh, Williams was another team that signed that agreement. Yeah. Uh, You've got some news on that front, Danny, yeah. as well. They're still around. This broke um, kind of late last week, I guess. Um, it was kind of a bunch of people scrambling to talk about a good week to do it, I guess, in between the races. Um, yeah, Williams are going to stick around, and they have done the thing that they have been trying not to do for this entire time, which is bring in an outside investor to help the whole thing stay afloat. Uh, they've bit the bullet, but hopefully they've found a good partner in, and I have to make sure I pronounce this right, Doralton. Doralton. It's an investment Doralton. group that nobody's heard of. So I'm going yes. to hopefully dive into the details a little bit here. Uh, first of all, some sort of top-level stuff from race fans. Deputy Principal Claire Williams said that the team's sale was, quote, the end of an era for Williams as a family-owned team. It was founded by her father, Sir Frank Williams, in 1977. In a statement, the team said the sale received the unanimous support of the board of Williams, including Sir Frank, who determined the transaction delivers the best outcome for the company's shareholders and secures the long-term success of the Williams for Formula One team. Williams' identity will be preserved through the takeover as well as its historic name. Uh, the team will also uh, remain on its current premises in Oxfordshire, UK, and retain the FW chassis naming convention, which of course refers to the founder, Sir Frank Williams himself. Um, so, yes, they have essentially sold the uh, F1 side of the business, or they have they have taken a majority stake. Um, um, uh, from Darleton, who I've done a little bit of research on. Uh, they're, they're, so the, a lot of the scuttlebutt coming out of reporters right after this was saying that um, th- this isn't a particularly aggressive investment capital um, uh, firm, if you can believe that. <laughs> you know, I, start, I think anyone goes into... The, you know the assuming anything about investment capital uh, firms that they're there to make money and you know if something's not profitable they'll tear it asunder and and, and sell it off but uh, from their portfolio and from their uh, what relatively little we know about it and also f- mostly coming from what people have known the Williamses to be saying about how they feel about investment and what they're talking about here um they seem like a sort of a uh, more hands-off uh, company when it comes to this sort of stuff uh, their portfolio includes a bunch of just r- random stuff they have one company who's slightly involved in an in engineering that does some sort of work when it comes to um oil platforms uh, which is why the quote from claire in the 
statement, which was something along the lines of they have an interest in the sport, uh, people who understand the sport. Apparently, that comes from some folks who are on the board of uh, uh, Doralton who are involved in cars in some respect in the UK. Um, but they actually have never invested in any sporting organization uh, team uh, up until this point. Um, they've got investments mostly in the US, uh, predominantly in food, uh, engineering, like I said, um, just a lot of like big corporations you've effectively never heard of. Um, and they are a US firm, right? Yes, uh, okay. they are. Um, so... Yeah, it's uh, it seems like a probably you know a bitter pill to swallow. I imagine in some respects over my dead body, Danny. Uh, yeah, I know. Right, <laughs> I, I think it, I imagine especially Is that in the Williams Concord, documentary or Netflix. I can't remember, but yeah, it was that whole the idea of you know Claire didn't want to be the person to have to sell to be you know driving the train when they had to sell it. So uh, it's happened. It sounds like perhaps Concord was maybe a factor in, you know, having this happen when it did, how fast Mm -hmm. it happened. Um, It sounds like they were in talks for quite a long time around this. Um, But uh, the hope, at least, the optimism, and everyone about, I think everyone who's talking about this, F1 reporters and People involved in F1, they all want to be very optimistic about this. The optimistic angle on this right now is that they're not going to change much about Williams. Time will tell. Um, but for the moment, at least, it secures Williams' uh, um, short to medium-term future in F1, which I feel like for as long as this podcast has been going, has been in doubt. So in that respect, congratulations to Williams. I have two questions. Go for it. Number one, do you care that Williams is owned by somebody now? I care for them. Uh, I think family-owned businesses are an artifice of a, of a time that no longer exists. One that perhaps in motorsport, particularly, uh, in, you know, in F1 in particular, I think, uh, in a way that something I would feel nostalgic for, certainly, but I don't, hold on to that world anymore i was watching uh, i think this uh, last week or so i watched a bunch uh, yeah last week because there was no race i watched a bunch of old f1 tv stuff and i was shocked at how many people are not involved in the sport or have passed away or have moved away and f1 is such a different thing to what it was five or ten years ago that and the world is that i i don't particularly you know more unfitted i feel bad for claire i would have loved for them to be able to do it themselves but if you had to ask me to choose between Williams being around and, you know, Claire Williams's ego, then always going to pick the first. My second question. Do you think Claire Williams is the team principal in 2022? Yeah, all signs seem to suggest that that would that is going to be the case. Um, from what I have heard from a lot of the reporting around this, while the sort of deal has been struck Again, I think maybe sped up a little bit because of Concord. Some of the, um, you know, structural elements of the company and and personnel stuff is probably going to be uh, solidified more over the next six to 12 months. But from what it sounds like, they don't want to do a shakeup. I would imagine, I I mean, I'm no investment capitalist or whatever, but like I would imagine that given the current sort of like, um, you know, uncertain times that the last thing they want to do is 
pull somebody in uh, her, you know, future in the sport over the next couple of years. We've talked a lot, you know, yourself, Rob, and myself have talked a lot about what is the problem with Williams. Is it the car? Is it the people? Is it just this? Is it the way that the whole thing has been structured and the way it's run? Like, seemed like maybe that was part of it in the documentary. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think in the short term, I think she's here next year for sure. I think they'll keep her um, in the in the company i think the big alarm bell that would go off would now more than ever would be if claire went because it is a family business um maybe she'll shift roles though maybe she won't be team principal in a couple of years and will step into a different role i imagine she'd probably half enjoy that as well but Mm. what's cool about this i think is that it hope it actually sort of creates the opportunity for a new arc in their story and perhaps one of redemption for you know the team and, and and for her I'm just going to say, Drew, after seeing that documentary about the Williams family and uh, their their path in F1, I think one of the weird subtexts of it is that, not even subtext, it is the film. One, has this entire endeavor been good for the Williams family overall, right? Right. Are they a happier family because they all followed Sir Frank down this particular rabbit hole of being an F1 team? And two, Jonathan, is that the brother? The one who's been like abandoned on the island of misfit F1 parts? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. so. Uh, but I, the, the other part of this is the Williams team was at its most successful when basically nobody named Williams was running it day to day, right? Like this is one of those weird things of the team sucked when Frank was running it. When Frank could no longer run it, and Patrick Head, I believe, took over. The team started to have some enormous success. And then as the Williams family stepped back into the breach and took on more of a leading role, the team began to decline uh, quite a bit. And so I think there's a lot of strange sentimentality around this idea of Williams as a family business, when arguably the thing that's probably held that team back the most is to an extent that it's been... Uh, sort of linked to the fortunes of a truly odd uh, collection of individuals. Um, But this deal is also kind of a strange one. Uh, You don't hear about... um, So I guess Doralton is a family office, uh, meaning that it is... um, Family offices can't manage other people's money, right? So... Uh, that's that's the deal. Uh, if a family office might have portfolios on like not on par, but like in some ways comparable to like decently sized mutual funds and such. Mm. But the thing the family office can't do is take other people's uh, money and manage it for them and like charge fees. This is somebody's uh, like this is some ultra rich family's uh, like vehicle for investing. Right. And I am really curious what is the play here? Uh, because with a publicly traded company, with like a with a like with a publicly held in, in investor group, you do kind of expect you have to know what the play is. You have to you have to see like what are the ways that what what's the path to profitability. Yeah, you gotta have a five ten year plan, right? Yeah. A company like Darlton doesn't necessarily have to have that. And so it's kind of just a it's a weird deal. Um, it is. I, I went through all the companies they invested in prior, and it's all stuff from yeah. like 10, 15 years ago. Like it's it's not 
it's not like they're they're bursting with all these new blue chip kind of companies or anything. Your point, I think, is a good one though. Is that like Williams? They're they're like George Lucas when he decided to direct Star Wars. Like as soon as you you put <laughs> right. you know, the the, yeah. the one in charge that uh, whose whose thing it is, maybe it doesn't turn out so great. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that is that is kind of it. Like it, it's undeniably Sir Frank's passion for racing that created the F one team. But in terms of all their success, it was largely the competence of other people uh, that delivered it. And so, I think anything that kind of frees the team to be a little more advanced, a little less driven by uh, this obsession over identity and doing everything yourself um, as as a independent operator. Uh, that's, that's, that's probably all to the good, but I am so curious and maybe a little skeptical about what the Williams operation looks like in a few years' time. Mm. Yeah. A um, couple of quick hits here. That engine mode ban we mentioned uh instead of being instituted before spa will instead be pushed back to monza so uh, we'll probably cover that uh next time um and speaking of the calendar rob what's uh going on here well uh so turkey is a done deal uh turkey is happening but it also sounds like the the 2020 f1 calendar might be signed sealed and delivered uh, that we have our final run of races. Uh, so that's that's a little bit confusing, however, because I, I think F1 has also left the door open to more events being added still. Uh, but it, it does seem like at this point uh, it's pretty much locked in for a uh, 17 race season. Uh, so to run that to run through that really quickly, uh, that means that obviously next we have Spa, then we're going to Monza, then to Mugello in Italy, uh, then sadly we must go to Sochi, uh, <laughs> then 11 October uh, to for the for the Eiffel uh, Grand Prix. If we if we have why is that? Why is it not the German GP? Is it yeah, just because that's too fraught now? Like because they killed the German GP, they can't just bring it back. Uh, for this huh. one event, but they're racing. I think they're just they're just huge Eiffel sixty five fans that are going to play that blue dabba dee dabba da song for the entire length. <laughs> perfect, of the, yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, then uh, twenty five October going to Portugal. Uh, then we've got the return to Imola and what was just added uh, the fifteenth November uh, Turkish Grand Prix at Hooray. Istanbul. Awesome. And then we're going to uh, a doubleheader at Bahrain and then wrapping the season uh, in mid-December at Abu Dhabi. I'm going to miss Interlagos. Yeah. Always fun, always fun to have it at the end. Yeah. It's a, it's a great circuit. Um, improbably. Double Bahrain might not be bad. I think yeah, that'll be good. That's a fun track. Yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the telecodromes that people just always kind of vibe with. It's going to be so strange having it at the end of the season. It's usually the second race, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, I think it'll be good though. To I associate that with with some decent races, though. Maybe that is still the halo of um, that like vicious fight that Rosberg and Hamilton uh, got into <laughs> at Bahrain, yeah. like that one year, or um, uh, Leclerc's star-crossed run at uh, at, at the circuit <laughs> oh, there right. last year. 
Yeah. Where, where, what's the date on Abu Dhabi and Bahrain? Uh, Abu Dhabi is the 13th of December uh, to wrap okay. up the season. And then they're racing at Bahrain uh, 29th November okay. and 6th of December. They could feasibly do a day race then in Bahrain if it's that late in the in the year. It won't be because the heat in the summer in that part of the world is obviously insane and the humidity. But um, they did Bah Bahrain used to be a day race, and then they made it a night race. Am I going crazy? They oh yeah, Bahrain. Night, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a so, day race, and it wasn't good. Uh, no, I think partly because it just didn't photograph well. Uh, yeah, like it was the, yeah very flat and sort of yeah. Yeah, once they started shooting it at night, um, it really became one of the more spectacular uh, mm. circuits with the lit dunes. Uh, so that's pretty cool. But the other crucial thing is that uh, F1, with a 17-race season, uh, has met its obligations for the broadcast TV deal. Uh, which is where the real money uh, for F1 has always been. And so this is like they've they've basically pulled it off, right? Like I think when we were talking back when COVID first hit, one of the things that was potentially so apocalyptic about this season was that they wouldn't be able to have a championship that like met the criteria for satisfying their TV obligations. Mm -hmm. And the minute you're in the world of prorating that, uh, that would have just been a really hard blow, especially to those teams uh, toward the bottom end of the scale. Now they've they've done it, uh, and so this has uh, pretty effectively salvaged the season. Yeah, cool. good on them. Yeah, it's wild. All those months ago, when I said we'd have like maximum five races, I'm glad <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> well, speaking of pretty circuits, let's take it to Spa, Danny. Yeah, Spa, as uh, as you said at the top of the show, in the valley in the beautiful Ardennes forest in Belgium, uh, site of the Battle of the Bulge and uh, many a fantastic music festival. Um, it's the longest track on the circuit. It's seven kilometers. It also holds the uh, crazy high average speed of about 227 kph. Uh, it's uh, clockwise, 19 turns, but there's plenty of left-handers in there as well. Uh, it's also one of the most unpredictable in terms of weather, not just the sort of general uh, what's the, what's it going to be like today? Is it going to rain? Is it going to be hot? Uh, but also all over the track, the amount of ground that this track covers and the topography of the uh, where it finds itself means that there often is relief rain coming off of some of the valley hills. Um, it's just long enough that sometimes it's raining in one part of the circuit and not yet in another. Um, so you get absolutely loads of variability here. Uh, the drivers love it. The corners are fun. Um, there's a lot of sort of like double apex corners, a lot of fast uphill uh, straights, a lot of fast downhill um, uh, curves. Um, it's historically quite dangerous as well. It was one that in which there was, you know, Lots of um, changes have been made to it. It used to be incredibly, incredibly long. But of course, in recent years, it's also been uh, incredibly dangerous and, and tragically so last year with the passing of Antoine Hubert during the um, Formula 2 race there. Uh, so it, it's... Um, uh, by the way, actually, have you played much of the F1 game? No, not this year's. Be because because uh, you go through the F F2 races and I had totally forgotten, but Antoine Hubert is in it. Um, because it's last year's F2 season, and I guess mm -hmm. they talked to the family about it as well. Um, I was doing a season in F2 in Spa and overtook Antoine Hubert, and it was the most, like, like it just felt cold. It was just yeah. like, it was, like, kind of nice, but also, like, 
I stayed well clear of him. Like, you know what I mean? It was kind of like, that's, that really well, fucking yeah. sucks. Um, but it's nice that he's in there, I think. Um, uh, uh, obviously, the family were, were totally fine with it, which is, which is nice. Um, yeah, so, you know, last year, obviously, we had a, we had a, a terrible crash on uh, what is also sort of the top of what is also one of the most famous, if not the most famous turn uh, in, uh, f- uh, in uh, F1, Eau Rouge, or Radion. Um, it's a sort of a triple apex uh, little system there at the top of the hill. There are two DRS straights on this, the Kemmel straight, which is right after Eau Rouge. It's uh, pretty much the only flat straight part of this entire track. Uh, and then you have another one after what is known as Blanchimont, which is the 17th turn on this track um, before you get down to the chicane at the bottom, um, which is taken uh, incredibly fast. Uh, uh, most of the track is taken incredibly fast. Even Puhan, which is this um, turn 12, which is the the one that always kills everyone on the, the racing game, right? It's just impossible to oh, do. Really that so downhill, Yeah, the downhill uh, left-hander. Off camber as well. Yeah, it's wild, and it's, yeah. you take that in seventh gear. Um, I watched uh, an interview with Verstappen recently where he said it's one of his favorite corners in the F1 track, so obviously um, they like it quite a lot. Uh, it's uh, usually with these track walks to try and give you a couple of spots to, to keep your eye for it. Honestly, uh, this is one of those tracks that just every single corner has its own little fun thing going on. So much variability. Uh, the tight hairpin on turn one is, is uh, you know, we're used to tight first turns but uh, this one is you've got so little downforce because of how um it's like slightly downhill um and the exit of it is so important so critical because you basically are going uh, almost flat out until you hit uh, lacombe on turn seven um that probably uh the two big spots for drivers are the entrance into blanchimont kind of like that uh tight right hander turn 16 which is uh, again taken flat out um uh, because both of those um, sections, you've got a massive straight, and you're basically just trying to uh, get as fast as you can so you can use the DRS to try and make the overtake. But it's not one of those tracks where you just get to overtake there. Uh, uh, Spa is a track where you can overtake almost anywhere if, you, if, you're, if you've got the grip and if you're gutsy enough. So um, hopefully it'll be a fun race. It's usually, it's rarely a boring race at Spa. It's usually interesting. We often get safety cars. Um, and uh, if nothing else, you know, we'll get a bit of, bit of weather might be nice, but I'm not sure what's going to happen this weekend. Maybe Drew knows. Well, Danny, according to uh, Google weather here, actually, I think this is weather.com data they're pulling in from. Uh, it's going to be a chilly one. High 50s Fahrenheit or around 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, a little windy at, uh, let's see, about 19 kilometers an hour um, or what is that? 12 miles an hour. Uh, slightly lower uh, on race day. Uh, the previous was uh, for qualifying. Um, but the big question, precipitation. Mm. I'm happy to announce qualifying <gasps> 62%. Ooh. Race day, 80. What? Yeah, there we go. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. That's great. This is, as well, this is the week they usually do it. So I know a lot of the races got moved around and it's all crazy party, but this, it's the last week, first week of September, last week of August is usually when spa happens. So we're, uh, we're for white. the week from Tuesday to Tuesday that on my view here, only one day, Thursday sees any sun. The rest of it is just rain. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. 
Uh, so going into this race, let's go down the driver standings here, shall we? Lewis Hamilton on top with 132 points. Max Verstappen in second place with 95. Valtteri Bottas behind him with 89. Then we've got Charles Leclerc in fourth place with 45. Lance Stroll and Alexander Albon are tied for fifth place with 40 points. Lando Norris right behind in seventh place with 39 points. Sergio Perez is in eighth with 32. Then we've got Carlos Sainz with 23 and Daniel Ricciardo rounding up the top 10 with 20 points. Then we've got a tie between Sebastian Vettel and Esteban Ocon in 11th place with 16 points. Pierre Gasly's in 13th with 14 points. Nico Hulkenberg hanging in there with 6 points. Antonio Giovinazzi and Danny Kvyat have 2. They're in 15th place. Magnussen's in 17th. And then Kimi Raikkonen, uh, Nicholas Latifi, George Russell, and Romain Grosjean are all pointless. <laughs> Constructor standings. Mercedes on top with 221 points. Red Bull's in second with 135. Then Racing Point with 63. McLaren with 62. And Ferrari with 61. Wow. Uh, Renault's in sixth place with 36 points. Alpha Tauri has 16. Alpha Romeo has two. Gene Haas and team have one point. And Williams bringing up the goose egg. <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to join our fantasy league, you can do so by using the link in the show notes. Um, but uh, you can also email us, Danny, at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or, or f1.cool slash emails. slash emails. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have some emails this week. We get emails every week. Thank you to everyone who sends emails. I do read all of them, even if we don't read them out. This one, I'm not going to read out, but shout out to Michael Patterson, who is a data scientist. He likes science so much that he wrote a 1,500-word email about (laughs) AWS, which I really appreciate, but it was quite in the weeds and long, so we're not going to read it out, but thank you very much, Michael. Is there an upshot to that one? The upshot is, uh, like, there was no broad sort of uh, outcome from it even, so it's hard to, like, even summarize it. But basically, he was saying was that um, Rob was totally on point last week and that the way in which they are, like, analyzing and presenting data science is almost entirely removed uh, from reality uh, in a way that Michael was saying is very infuriating to him and his job because people come to him with data and expect it to plug it into the magical data machine <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it spits out like like the reality of this stuff and the way in which data should be used like he was saying you could use it for like timing in this way and that way but like arbitrary stuff like who's the fastest f1 drive like he's like that data doesn't work that way right like and without presenting how the data was used then you don't get any um you need to kind of know you know why how it was being analyzed in a way to show it and he also said which is something i think both of you have said um that the obfuscation of that data, that like somebody ha- is like 75% of speed on this corner is one of the biggest no-nos. That like that's hmm. that's not presenting information in a way that's usable to people. So um, yeah, he seemed to basically agree and then um, wrote a, a, a manuscript about it. So thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Uh, this first email uh, I'm going to take from uh, Martin Lunsford says, uh, it's all about the F1 2020 game, which we talked a little bit about. I've been having a blast with it last week. I have my race wheel in my uh, my basement downstairs and I've been uh, jumping in there because it's too hot in the rest of the house. Um, Martin says, so I started my career in F1 at Haas since I'm the only American on the grid. Once I won the driver's championship, I moved to Red Bull. This then had a strange effect. Max moved to McLaren while Norris and Ocon went to AlphaTauri. 
Grosjean retired and Kimi went to Haas and Giovinazzi went to Renault. <laughs> Why the hell would the algorithm make Max move instead of Albon? Uh, this made me laugh so much when I read it. Um, can we just parse this? Let's just try and figure out a world in which any of these make okay. sense. So the domino. So Martin, driver's cha- Haas driver's champion. <laughs> yeah. Decides he uh, he's going to Red Bull. Well, now Red Bull can't accommodate two big dogs. Like, Martin <laughs> is the shit. Like, suddenly Max is Daniel Ricciardo. And he's looking yeah. at Martin, the new golden child of Red Bull. And it's like, I don't want any part of that. Because <laughs> now, like, that guy's, that guy's an American F1 star. Like, no, suddenly I'm irrelevant. Oh, Dutch fans, the orange, the orange cloud the the orange wall who gives a shit we got an american he goes to the orange team yeah 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 good point that's it that's it brand brand brandalism yeah so alvin stands pat uh because it makes sense for him but but uh max needs to go to a place where he can be the and he goes driver. and joins ricardo at mclaren his old ah, team his old buddy old buddy old pal um, oh man poor ricardo norris and right. i guess in this world Ocon is still at McLaren. So we've Norris and Ocon, right? So cuz what season are we? Cuz this is this no, season. No, so so Ocon leaves Renault to open up the spot for Giovinazzi. Mhm. Ra- oh, yes, that's so what. So Ocon yes. goes to Renault uh, to um AlphaTauri. AlphaTauri. Norris and Ocon are together at AlphaTauri. <laughs> at last. Yeah. At last, yeah. Always I wanted could, to be part Grosjean of that. Grosjean retiring and, and Kimmy staying in to go to Haas, that makes all the sense in the world to me. That, that is that, 100% that doable. <laughs> could you imagine how happy Magnussen would be if Kimmy was his... That'd be great. Yeah. Can you yeah, imagine? Kimmy He'd be the most chill. Grosjean's the type of guy who asks, asks teacher a million questions, you know, at, at the team meetings, and Kimmy just sits there and just doesn't give a shit. Hold on, though. I actually... <laughs> see, now I feel cheated we, we don't live in this reality uh, because... <laughs> Kimmy and Gunther, I think, would be one of the most fascinating oil and water like combinations that you would ever see. Because Kimmy just wouldn't take it. He just wouldn't take it. Uh, and so I could see that being pretty fantastic. But you, but you know what? I think they. Have, I think it's a match made in heaven. Because you know, what Kimmy also wouldn't do make mistakes. That's also Iceman. true. He doesn't tend to do it. Remember that one time he collided with Botas on the penultimate lap was the one time Kimmy's made a mistake. We still talk about it. Kimmy's is, yeah. Kimmy's is cool. It calls his eyes. Giovinazzi or Renault. He's no Martin sure. Lunsford, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Our next email comes from Faiz Imam. It regards uh, hydrogen cars. Hey, Rob was asking what the deal was with hydrogen cars, and I'd let you know it's as it's something I've researched quite a bit in my studies in sustainable mobility. Hydrogen is a totally legitimate and useful technology, but it has two key issues that prevented it from getting mass adoption. The first is uh, the first problem is one that it shares uh, with EVs, which is that the fuel cell and storage system is both very expensive and very heavy. Like EVs, this is being developed, and it's better than it used to be, but still an obstacle. The second and more serious issue is refueling, and the wider issue of a national hydrogen infrastructure. 
It's not just something that you can get everywhere as opposed to electricity. This is why EVs have exploded in the last few years while hydrogen cars have disappeared. I do not expect any of us will ever see a hydrogen-powered vehicle in day-to-day life. However, they can still absolutely have a role. You can set a lot of power and have high capacity even if you do, even if you do not care about the weight of large tanks. The main use they're expected to serve in a clean future is in heavy industry and short-range trucking, where they can be expected to have a central refueling depot to return to, and where they don't have to worry about being extremely heavy. The very fast refueling, as opposed to batteries, allows them an excellent role in mining, for example. P.S. All of the above depends on how the hydrogen is sourced. Currently, most of the world's supply comes as a byproduct of oil drilling. But clean hydrogen from renewable electricity is the goal of a lot of current research. Love the show, guys. Keep it up. Uh, so that's interesting to me. So I'm wondering, mm. um, short-range trucking, like last-mile delivery, is that the idea there? Where it's like, or is he uh, talking about extraction? You know, yeah. Well, he's definitely like, talking about uh, extraction, like like the huge those huge dump trucks, maybe that you see at like mining sites. Uh, like yeah, go out and get the Tiberium, round. bring it back. Yeah, to your, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but. <laughs> I'm very like, but the short range trucking, I do kind of wonder if that's last mile where it's like suddenly you, the, the model would be like what panel trucks. Right. Um, well, that's it. That be is interesting because I even, I remember when the electric trucks started coming in vogue, when I lived in London, the first electric cars that we saw were what you're talking about. That last mile delivery, like UPS kind of stuff, right? Like, like, uh, um, those types of things that, and I guess that was also a byproduct of that same issue of, of just well that was I guess the battery problem where they just weren't able to run that long. Um, yeah, I could I could totally see that. I wonder if we're going to see more, you know, with COVID and with the sort of patterns that we've developed uh, globally. Uh, I wonder if we're going to be doing a lot more. You know, I never did Instacart before. You know what I mean? Like I like to well, go to the grocery yeah. store. Like I wonder if there is just more. Like Amazon seems to, obviously Jeff Bezos has made a fortune during this because everyone's ordering off Amazon. Like I wonder have we settled into a world in which we do order more? And even if the world was to, you know, if we clicked our fingers and a vaccine was immediately in everyone's bloodstream uh, tomorrow, would we still order as much as we do now? I try not to do this too much, but I am going to plug my website here. Go for it. Um, so Motherboard over at Vice actually does have some of the best reporting on gig economy uh, stories and uh, also around uh, logistics. Um, oh, cool. So kind of leading the reporting on uh, gig gig labor is a reporter by the name of Lauren uh, Cowrie Gurley. And leading the report on like infrastructure and particularly the postal service these days, we've got Aaron Gordon. Um, and if there's a if there's a through line to a lot of the reporting they've they've done around this, uh, as with a lot of these things, these conveniences we're talking about do rely a lot on certain distortions of the market that exist right now, like. The reason having your groceries delivered is viable right now is because there's a huge pool of cheap labor that Instacart can like algorithmically kind of exploit, right? Like uh, I think just today we published a story about how the Instacart app, a bit like Uber, keeps getting more punitive to shoppers uh, because now you're being like, it's becoming much more like of a taskmaster. Uh, your responsiveness is measured. 
Um, it's All right. A, yeah. So Instacart in particular, just as a broad statement, I would say probably not the food delivery service I would oh, use. Oh, really? Um, okay. I'll, I'm, their we're practices look at that might then. be the among the worst, but none of them are great because they all share these problems, which is that you have companies providing a service, but they don't have a workforce. They don't have the workforce they're obligated to serve in any respect. Right. And we've, we've seen that in California recently with the Uber and Lyft stuff where they're trying to force them to have them as employees, right, and give them health care and stuff like that. Right. And so if these loopholes are ever closed, like the entire business model falls apart because the right. entire thing basically exists on sidestepping a lot of labor law. Like the profit margin that, is based on this disruption. It doesn't feed, it doesn't work at all if you have to play by the same rules as everyone else. Right. And the entire contractor model kind of depends on people independent contractors are meant to be like independent contractors, right? I run a small firm. It was never intended to be, I'm a cab driver, but I don't have a medallion. Right. Uh, <laughs> ditto the entire logistics thing, like us being able to have things delivered uh, right, right and left. Um, one of the things that we're seeing a lot is that the backbone of delivery has been, in a lot of cases, the postal service. Hmm. Um, not just even when orders are supposedly being fulfilled by like UPS or FedEx, um, or any of those numerous private parcel companies that Amazon, uh, sort of, uh, funds and creates for itself. UPS is still doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, the postal service is still doing a lot of the heavy lifting, uh, for that. And, what happens if the postal service begins to break down or go away in a move toward privatizing it? Hmm. Um, a lot of the convenience factors we're talking about would probably start to dry up. We would see degradations in service. Um, that goes triple A if you are not like in a major metro area. So I think there's, there's a weird thing with um, the new normal and the way our patterns have shifted, which is that, all of it is kind of taking place in this weird context of uh, not only does the gig model rely on a large pool of uh, available and exploitable labor, but in particular, COVID itself created yeah. a lot of people that you would never see doing jobs like this. We have totally. a couple shoppers that we work with um, regularly that – like. This is not their ma their main gig, and so they're they're incredible. They're they're incredibly detail oriented people because their their real jobs are on hiatus right now. Right, and so if things go back to normal ish in six months, will convenience still be there? I kind of have my doubts. It's wild. Do you, do you want to plug the the service you do use, Rob? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the service I use is an odd one. Um, it's called Dumpling. And you can only buy dumplings. Got it. I'm on it. I love it. Yeah. Sounds great. So basically have Dim sum uh, all day, baby. <laughs> no, so I, I use a service <laughs> called Dumpling. Um, and that's a bit of an interesting one because it's not really a platform in the way Instacart is. You're not working through Instacart. It's more like, um, and this is the model of every single shopper I work with right now. It's as if people have started their own shopping business and they just post their rates on like the job board in the area they serve. Oh, And okay. you can just click through and be like, this person seems to, they show what stores they go to, they show what like their specialties are. So Taking uh, if someone is like, yeah. And, and right, that's very much the point. Dumpling doesn't uh, 
charge like huge fees for the platform, so more of the money ends up in uh, the shoppers' pockets. Um, and awesome. it's yeah. So the the weird trade off with that though is that you aren't dealing through the platform. Once you contract with somebody on Dumpling, you're just exchanging phone numbers and right. like you're coordinating these messages. But the result of that for me has been we now have like three or four people who we know and who know us that we work with basically directly. Right. Um, don't pick that milk. Instacart. Don't pick that yeah. milk. That's the wrong milk. And you don't like that. That's milk. exactly <laughs> dude. It's, it's a dumb thing, milk but it totally gassy. is a real thing where someone's like, uh, you guys, I saw they had extra Rainier <laughs> cherries at the store this week. You guys really like those, right? So I got an extra bag nice. and I'm like, hell yes, you're the best. <laughs> uh, so that's, cool. that's the good shit. Nice. I'm going to get on that. Uh, Drew, you got the last email. Yeah. Uh, Jed writes in, for the races that aren't in the F1 games, could you do the video track walk in Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 <laughs> instead? <laughs> Drew is a licensed pilot after all. Thanks and love the show. How many tracks have you been to? Uh, so far, I think I've only flown over Sonoma. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. I, I, As it happens, complete happenstance, circumstance, I did uh, fly over Coda yesterday. Nice. Yeah, because I was doing Austin. I was doing a trip over Austin. Um, I wonder if you could land on the... I've seen surface. people land on Silverstone. Oh, yeah. Um, you can okay. land. You can yeah. land. So, Fucking yes. But you know the way it like it kind of like guesses stuff? Yeah. It, it, uh-huh. it did something weird. It doesn't have... The thing, because if you've flown into Austin, you can see Coda. It's impossible to miss almost because it's right beside the airport. It's on the flight path in the east, uh, and also it has, of course, that big thing that you can stand yeah. on right in the middle of it. Right? Yeah. So that's not in it. It's it, but it also didn't put a skyscraper there because, Damn like, it. for for instance, I did a <laughs> I did a flight right after that. I did um National uh, Reagan Airport in uh, in DC, which all the Democrats there call National. Um, the I flew from there to Kent, uh, which is over in Annapolis, where I used to live, and I flew over the Washington Monument, and it's just a skyscraper. It's got is like it a lot. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you guys see why the Melbourne Obelisk existed? No, I never knew why. Yes. I never heard out why. Why? Why? Why is it? So, uh, Open Streets uh, collates data on like there's an address. We know a building is there, but someone can submit like facts about the building, including its height. Okay. Uh, Somebody like fat fingered the number of stories the building <laughs> oh. at uh, this address in Melbourne is. I think it's supposed to be a 22 story building. Uh, someone put 212 in for uh, <laughs> in for the size of the building, and so the game is pulling where open source where open streets data exists. It is pulling that data into the uh, simulation, and so it was just like, okay, I know this building is at this address, and it's 212 stories tall. That's Got amazing. It. And builds just that ridiculous uh, monolith. It's incredible. It's so good. It's it's one of those things. It's like the Uncanny Valley or something where um, everything in that world looks so unbelievably real. Sorry, if you don't know, by the way, Flight, Microsoft Flight Simulator basically creates a... It, it's the entire map of the entire globe based off of Bing Maps and a bunch of other uh, data that they've pulled. Um, uh, and it and it, re, it creates a, a version of the world that's like incredible to fly over. But every once in a while, yeah, like Ocean Beach, for instance, Drew, there's a bunch of buildings... Um, south of the cliff house for some reason and it's like they mm. just stand you're like why are they there or the sand dunes that are down there are like way higher because they much must look higher or something so but it's, man it, you compare to like what we were working with before and this is light years <laughs> right because you've been using flight sims for years i flew over my hometown and like 
like it made me sad like it made me like it made me happy as well because like but like i miss home i'm not gonna fly home for a long time but it really really felt like it like even the cloud coverage i did real time and it, it was like yep that's what that's what it's like being in ireland you get fucking 17 layers of different clouds and they're flying <laughs> like it, it it gave me like that same sense of when i go on it when i take a bus in ireland and i'm going through the the, the countryside it was uh it was remarkable but yeah i you can basically we should do like i it's basically my mission in that game to visit every f1 track um what's it? spa's probably gonna be the hardest to land on right maybe, yeah it's gonna be maybe spine too in the yeah. yeah. No, Spielberg. So they, it's not Spielberg is a clear hilltop, though. Like, yeah, you probably don't have the runway, but like, <laughs> that's what I'm worried Spa's about. Spa's trees. Yeah, yeah you gotta this got to be on the ball there. And this game puts trees where it sh- there shouldn't be trees sometimes. Uh, I don't it's heavy that. on the trees, so yeah, yeah. I guess uh, Monaco I, is probably the hardest now to think about. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that might be tough. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it would probably be easier with a uh, a helicopter, which the, this game does not currently have. But um, Red Bull did do a race, I think, between somebody in an F1 car. Was it Coulthard, maybe? Or maybe it was Verstappen. Oh, I remember this. Um, yeah. yeah, A race between the uh, uh, an F1 car and a plane. And I think it was uh, an extra, um, which is definitely in Microsoft Flight Simulator. Oh, really? So we could try to replicate that, yeah. That's wild. That's a, fun, that's a fun idea. Fly around the world. Uh, well, if you'd like to send us a tweet as well, you can do that at Shift F1 Podcast um, on Twitter. I am at Drew Scanlon. That is at Danny O'Dwyer and at Rob Zachney. That is us around the internet. Should we take it around the world, Danny? It's around the world. Yeah. Formula 2 and Formula 3 are supporting Formula 1 at Spa this weekend. We have another IndyCar race at Gateway Motorsports Park on uh, Saturday and Sunday, looks That's like. sponsored by Hewlett Packard, is it? <laughs> it's it's the, the Bomarito Automotive Group. Bomarito? Bomarito. Bomarito, got it. Uh, it's, it's a really bad burrito. Um, <laughs> supercars are at... Uh, at a place which is uh, one of my favorite names of a place on earth, Townsville. Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah, that's very generic. I love it. Yeah. Uh, World Superbite is at uh, Motorland Aragon <laughs> in Middle Earth. <laughs> uh, the World Rally Cross Championship is at uh, mm, Kuvola Circuit in Finland. Super Formula is at uh, Twin Ring Motegi, Motegi, which is in the Tochigi Prefecture. What a prefecture! Shout out to uh, to our, our our boy Takuma Masato, by the way. We did. I don't think we said it. Um, who won the Indy Five Hundred? All right. Well, now I got to put spoiler notes in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks, <Sorry>. Danny. <laughs> every time that dude wins a major race, which I guess is just Indy, uh, every time that happens, though, it just messes me up because like. How did that guy turn into a great race car driver? Right. And I'm still not bad. convinced he did. Like, if you watch IndyCar, Takuma still does Takuma shit that yeah. you remember from his time <laughs> in F1. Like, he remains not necessarily the, like, the most consistent or, like, uh, uh, judicious driver you've ever seen. But, like, man, that guy's got a feel for Indy. Uh, the missing uh, piece of the pie was David Letterman, clearly. Um Yeah. Uh, uh, feel free to delete this from the podcast room if you need to. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just I'll just put uh, uh, 
uh, spoiler tags somewhere in the show notes. Um, let's see. We have the NASCAR Xfinity Series uh, is at Daytona Ooh. Beach, Florida for the Wawa 250 oh, powered by Coca-Cola. Now I miss Maryland again. Wait, God. that means something to you? Wawa, yeah. That's the... That's the the um, goth- Wait, Drew, do you know what Wawa is? No. Oh no! It's the better be uh, like a crab shack or something. No, it's like a, it's like the the like gas station. It's like the the like you go to the Wawa's. It's a ga- it's a gas station, but it has like you know your food court. It's got all your stuff. Um, have you ever heard of okay, sheets? Like sheets? Yeah. So sheets yeah. Is, sheets is like as as PA. So they're all mad about sheets. If you cross over into Pennsylvania, if you're on uh, this side of the Potomac, um, it's all about uh, Wawa. So. Um, yeah, Wawa's pretty good. I miss Wawa. It's good stuff. I miss getting my big gulp. Big gulps, huh? <laughs> uh, we've got Gander Mountain Trucks at Madison, Illinois at the Worldwide Technology Raceway at <laughs> Gateway. Is that what we're calling it now? Tell you, my Hewlett Packard. Coming back. <laughs> uh,. For the Car Shield 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 200, that'd be a much longer race. Uh, presented oh no, by CK it's like that, Power. It's like that skyscraper in Adelaide yeah. now, or we have to keep going. <laughs> That's right, I put too many zeros. And we got NASCAR. Oh my. Also at Daytona Beach at the International Speedway there for the Coke Zero Sugar 400. Zero sugar, zero taste. My darling Dradine was last weekend, so <laughs> that's it. Uh, and uh, Formula One kicking off this Friday, August 28th at 5 a.m. Eastern time is Free Practice yeah. 1 on ESPN, followed by uh, Free Practice 2 at 8 a.m. on ESPN 2. The Deuce, Ooh. Saturday, August 29th, Free Practice 3 is on ESPN 2 as well at uh, 6 a.m., followed oh. by Qualifying at 9 a.m. on ESPN The Regular. <laughs> and then the race, everyone, Sunday, August 30th at 9.05 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. It's raining uh, Final thoughts, rain. Danny? Hallelujah, yeah. I hope it rains. Even if it doesn't, it'll be a great race, let's be honest. But let's... Uh, Spa's often let's, good. Yeah, let's get the Bernie squirters out there. And never say that phrase again. <laughs> Are we seriously not doing <laughs> phrasing anymore? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I no, I finally found my uh, my vanity place. Bernie's quarters. There we go. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts? Okay. Nope, uh, not anymore. If, <laughs> just, yep. It just left my head. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes, you can do so at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Near.